Our text this morning is Acts chapter 10, verses 34 until the end of the chapter, verse 48. So if you would please give attention to the, to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is inerrant. The word of the Lord is sufficient. And the word of the Lord is authoritative. Acts chapter 10. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, everyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and caused him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would meet with us this morning that by the power of Your Word, we would know Your will. We would know what You have done for us. And we too would seek to glorify and extol You. Lord, we ask that You would send Your Spirit into our midst to illumine our minds, to fire our hearts, and to focus our wills. We ask all this In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever had a conversation in your family 
about a brand new sort of thing that your children have seen. Something that's just new and cool and has never really been tried before. You know, things like muscle cars. Things like Pepsi made with real sugar. Things like bell-bottom pants. Things that are just new and hip. And then, perhaps you have seen the face on your child droop a bit when you explain that You know, they had muscle cars when when I was a kid in the mid-80s. They called them Camaros and Firebirds. Oh, you know, they actually had them when your grandfather was a kid in the early 60s (laughs) when they were T-Birds and Mustangs. They're not really brand new. And you try and explain how every drink of carbonated beverages was made with real sugar. Not just the new Pepsi cans that have come out recently. And alas, bell-bottoms were all the rage in 1969. Not just in 2009. Well, this is a fun activity with the things that we have in the world, but it can also be something that we fall victim to in the spiritual realm as well. We're going to see an instance of that here this morning in Acts chapter 10. As God does something, in a sense, completely new and unheard of. As He grafts the Gentiles into His church and makes clear that the gospel is not just for the Jews. But this, like other throwbacks, is not really something new either. We will see that God had this plan all along. It was a plan that he revealed to Micah, a plan that he revealed to Isaiah, a plan that he revealed to Moses even before the Israelites came into their land. It's a plan of how the gospel is for everyone. And we will see the wall come down, a wall that had been built up, not as much by God as by man. And so this morning, I'd like us to see three things about the gospel. For those of you that are looking at your sermon notes, you'll need to get a pen out. Because last week's got put in there by mistake by me. Our first point is, who is the gospel for? Who is the gospel for? And then a second question we will ask ourselves is, what is the gospel It's not enough just simply to know who it's for. We need to know what the gospel is. And then lastly, we will ask the question, what does the gospel do? Who is the gospel for? What is the gospel? And what does the gospel do? Well, let's pick up here at verse 34 of Acts chapter 10. You may also notice that last week's text and this week's text overlap just a bit, two verses. It's a good opportunity to remind ourselves of what we looked at last week and how Acts chapter 10 is one of the most significant chapters in all of the Bible. How the Lord makes clear that the kingdom of God is not just for the Jews, but it is also for the Gentiles. And you recall that we ourselves were very happy about that, as nearly all of us are Gentiles. Gentiles. 
And so the fact that the gospel comes to us, that the kingdom of God is for us, is a great blessing. The focus last week was more on the expansion of the kingdom. We might call it categories within the kingdom. We reminded ourselves that following on our Lord's command to preach the gospel in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, we have seen that the kingdom expand from the environment of Jerusalem to Samaria, where the half-Jews live, and now we see it reaching the ends of the earth. We're going to see it expand even more and more as Paul takes his mission upon himself. And the focus was on the corporate reality of the people of God. This is an important thing for us to remember, that God has a people that we are not out there by ourselves. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. But at the same time, we need to remember that the kingdom of God and the salvation of God does not merely come to groups. Those commands, those demands of the gospel come to each and every one of us as individuals. And we're going to see a bit of that story this morning. And so we ask ourselves the question, who is the gospel for? And the gospel is not just for Jews and not just for an expansion of Gentiles. The gospel, we must always remember, is for everyone. The gospel is for suburbanites. The gospel is for city dwellers. The gospel is for people living under bridges. The gospel is for people relaxing on yachts. The gospel is even for people who do not speak English. They, even for people who don't understand English when we speak it louder and slower. For people whose cultures we do not understand at all. The gospel is for everyone. And this is not a new truth. Our Lord makes this clear way back in another chapter 10, chapter 10 of Deuteronomy. He says this, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes judgment for the fatherless and the widow And loves the sojourner. That's the foreigner. That's the alien. That's even the illegal alien. Giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God is not partial, Moses tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 10. It should sound familiar because it's exactly what Peter says in verse 34, he understands now that God shows no partiality. He has no favorites. This is part and parcel of the gospel because this is what Paul will take in Romans chapter 2 and verse 11 to describe that part of the character of God is a fundamental fairness and a love for all kinds of people. There is no specified subgroup that have an in with God. Now you see, we need to hear this, we Gentiles. Because, quite frankly, most of American missions 
is in violation of Acts 10, verse 34. Most American missions are designed to reach people for the gospel, to reach people for Jesus Christ. And broadly laid out, with sincerity of heart, there are two main steps. Step one, make everyone an American. Step two, give them the gospel and they will be receptive. And so in Egypt, we try and teach people English and American manners and American clothes and we give them American books. We do this in Africa. We have been doing this for decades. Now, praise be to God, this trend is changing in the last half century. But we need to remember the point of the gospel is not to make American Christians, but to make Christians, to make followers of Jesus Christ. And so we need to learn the lesson that Peter learned, that Cornelius learned, that those who were with Peter learned. We need to remember that we cannot hold back the truth that Jesus is Lord and that He died on a cross that our sins might be forgiven. It's very tempting to want to take first steps in the way of making a connection to see if someone is worthy of the gospel, ready for the gospel. But that's not the way the kingdom of God works. And we know this because Peter describes the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. And you take this gospel of the good news, the preaching of the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, because Jesus is Lord of all. You see, this wideness of the gospel is not based on who we are, that we are enlightened, that we are uh, humble, that we are open to others. This wideness of the gospel is because Jesus is Lord of everyone. There is no nation, no person on the face of the earth that Jesus is not Lord over. And if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus has the authority, if Jesus is the only way to be right for God, whether you are from Pakistan or Nigeria or Kurdistan or downtown Detroit, if Jesus is the only way of salvation, then the gospel is for everyone. There is no plan B. There is no other mechanism. We must bring the good news of Jesus Christ without exception. If you are here this morning relying on something other than the work of Jesus Christ to be right with God, you must know that you are following a vain truth. The only way that you can be right with God is through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is available for everyone. But that also means that there is a responsibility that goes with the gospel. We see it here with Cornelius in a verse that is confusing to many. Look with me at verse 35. Peter says that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Now, if we are not careful, we read that verse and we say, Aha! Here, righteousness by works in the Bible. All I need to do is do what God tells me and I'll be right with God. Acts chapter 10, verse 35. 
There's only one problem. That's not what Peter's saying here. What Peter is saying that those who fear God have what is called what? The beginning of wisdom. And those who do acts of righteousness are acceptable before God. They are responding to the light that God has given to them. And when they respond to that light, God gives more light. You see, God didn't leave Cornelius giving alms. He sent him Peter. And he didn't just send Peter to give him a pat on the back. No, he sent Peter to preach the gospel. He sent Peter to tell him he must repent and believe. And we know from Acts chapter 11 that he did believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there is a responsibility we have when the gospel is brought to us. When the word of God comes to us, we are responsible to respond. We do not initiate. You see, God is first here in every way. God is leading the way. God is laying forth the path of life. God has given the word of life. God has brought the preacher of life. But we must respond. We cannot be completely passive. We cannot treat the word of God lightly and expect Him to do everything. He creates faith in us, but we must exercise that faith. We must respond to the gospel. There is no merit in this. But we are required to respond. We're also required to be a channel for the gospel. For once we have the word of God in our heart, we must bring it to others. Israel had failed here. You'll notice it was the word, Peter says, that he sent to Israel. A word that they hoarded and thought was unavailable to the Gentiles. You see, Peter is repeating God's message and we must do the same. The gospel is for everyone. Well, what is this gospel then? What must we bring to others? Peter lays out here in a few short verses the main core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look how he begins in verse 36. The word that he sent to Israel was preaching good news of peace. Through Jesus Christ. We see first off that the gospel is good news. The gospel is not a weight to be laid down on us. It is good news. When people in the Bible hear the gospel, they leap for joy. They sing. They yell. They weep tears of joy. It is the best thing they have ever heard. They can't believe that they have been privileged to hear it. The gospel is good news. When we bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to others, do we bring good news? Do we bring the kind of news that would cause others to rejoice and to long to be with Jesus? Because you see, that is at the core of the gospel. This word gospel is an old Anglo-Saxon word that means good news. With good reason. Because the Greek word means good news. That's what the gospel is. And how could it not be good news when it is news of peace? Peace with God, Peter says. That is what the gospel is. It is not being enemies of God anymore. It is not being under the wrath of God. It is knowing peace. Do you know that kind of peace? 
Imagine, by way of analogy, a wonderful, beautiful fall Houston day. It's 80 degrees. With one of those breezes that's not too warm, not too cold. And you're not, you know, you're not sitting. You're laying in a hammock. And it's not one of these hammocks that the head is lower than the feet and you're not sure it's good. It's strong and it's secure between two big oak trees. And the breeze is blowing. And you brought out a little end table where you've put your favorite drink. A glass of sweet tea. Lemonade. Dr. Pepper. And you just are at peace. Everything is right in the world, right? It doesn't matter what else is going on. You could have a conference call tomorrow or an exam next week. Right then you are at peace. That's what the gospel does for you. It doesn't cancel out all of life. You'll still get bunions. You'll still get hungry. The car will still overheat. But you don't need to worry about those things. Because you're at peace with God. And you see, you know you're at peace with God because as Peter tells us, it's a peace that comes from God. Jesus Christ, God Himself, comes bringing that peace. And so when anyone walks up to you and says, you know, I don't know how you could be so arrogant as to know that you have peace with God. You say, God Himself came down and gave me peace. And He can give you peace. Come. There's an extra set of trees over there. Let's set up a hammock for you. Know that you are at peace with God and that all is right in the world. All is not right with the world, but all is right in the world when we are at peace with God. That's the core of the gospel. And the gospel comes to us Because of Jesus Christ Himself, it is peace from Him. And Peter begins to describe this. This short little sermon is a wonderful outline of the Gospel of Mark, often called Peter's Gospel. He begins with the life of Christ. Do you see how he begins? Just like Mark, he dives right in. He doesn't even give us the birth narrative. He begins with the baptism of John upon Jesus Christ. Now, why begin there? What's with John's baptism? Why is that so important to the gospel? Isn't John less important than Jesus? And we could get drawn into questions about what's the difference between John's baptism and the baptism of Jesus Christ. But I think what Peter wants us to see is that John's baptism does two main things for us. First, it identifies Jesus with us. Do you remember when Jesus asked John to baptize him, what John's response was? No way. I am not worthy. Do you remember Jesus' answer? Suffer it to be so, for righteousness' sake. You see, Jesus was not just God, although he was. He was also man, and that is critically important to the gospel. He identified with us. He entered into our situation. He took our sin upon Himself. But it's not just an identification with us. We see that Jesus Christ was capable of redeeming us. 
Because God the Father speaks from on high, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And you notice Peter puts it this way. He says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. That doesn't sound as breathtaking as if you transliterated a bit how God made Jesus of Nazareth Messiah. That's what anointing means. Messiah means the anointed one. You see, Jesus Christ became the Messiah. He took on the role of the Messiah at his baptism. The roles of prophet and priest and king and the redeemer of his people. Only Jesus Christ could do this. That's the gospel. No other good teacher. No other philosopher. No other good follower of Jesus whether John or Paul or Peter, every time someone walks up to them and wants to worship them, they're horrified. They say, I'm just a man. Let me tell you about Jesus. That's our gospel as well. Jesus had power from on high, power from God, the power to forgive sins. And then you will notice, Peter does something perhaps that we would not do. He doesn't begin by describing Jesus' teaching. You see that? He describes how Jesus did good and healed and freed people from the devil. He describes the actions that Jesus took. Because, you see, it is foolish to think we can follow the teaching of Jesus before we have become a follower of Jesus. We must become changed. We must see Him as God Himself. We must be transformed by the power of the gospel before we can obey Him. And Peter is showing us the power of Jesus Christ to cancel out sin, to heal the lame, to heal the sick, to defeat the devil. He is the one of whom the Scripture says, destroyed the works and the power of the devil. Jesus has this kind of power. He is our benefactor, Peter says. He is the one who does good. Is this the kind of Jesus that you know and worship? A Jesus of power and of glory. A Jesus of wisdom. Do you bring your suffering, your sin, your challenges to Lord Jesus? Because He is the one who defeats the devil. Do you, as you look out into the world today and see a satanic system leveled against you, leveled against the church, leveled against the word of God, do you count on Jesus Christ to crush it? Because he does. That is part of Jesus' job description. To crush the head of the serpent. To destroy the works of the devil. Jesus Christ is the one who brings complete victory. And so as we look out and we see the reality of the world, the reality that we see people oppressed by the devil, Peter saw that as well. Cornelius saw that when his eyes were opened. And their hope was in Jesus. Not in education. Not in technology. Not in books but in the power of Jesus Christ as the Savior of the people of God. 
Peter then moves from describing the power of the life of Jesus Christ to the death of Jesus Christ. It's often been said that the summary of the gospel is the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We'll get to the resurrection in a moment. And he begins to speak of the central focus of the gospel. He says, we are witnesses of all that Jesus did. And especially, let me tell you, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. He's reminding us that Jesus died a cursed, shameful death. Reminding us that we should never be embarrassed by Jesus. Jesus died the most shameful death imaginable. Some try and bring an illustration to this by saying things like, how would you like it if instead of a cross on a necklace, you had to wear a little electric chair or a little table with a needle for a lethal injection? It might be embarrassing to describe that. But I think both of these kinds of execution are more honorable than a crucifixion. I mean, think about it. We make sure that those that we put to death by capital punishment are in good health. They have a last meal. They're walked slowly and honorably. Every effort is made so that there will be no pain. And if there's any slight hiccup, months of investigations follow. Whereas in the crucifixion, you were stripped naked. You were taken hungry, tired through the streets while people threw things at you and spat on you and hit you. And that wasn't even the authorities. And then you were hung up for shame for hours on end until you came to a suffocating, horrible, bloody death. There is no greater shame, humanly speaking. There's no greater shame, theologically speaking, because Peter, by telling us, reminding us that he was hanged on a tree, reminds us that cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree from the Old Testament law. Jesus Christ became sin that we might be freed from sin. Jesus Christ became shame that we might be glorified. There is no room for embarrassment of the gospel. This is the core of the gospel. What Jesus did in life by power and what Jesus did in his death. Because you see, death could not hold him. Death, that great wall of separation is torn down. So you see, it's not just the wall between Jews and Gentiles that Jesus tore down. It is the wall between man and God. It is the wall of sin that we steadily purposefully built brick by brick by brick. It's every single time, children, you talk back to your parents. You put another brick in the wall between you and God. It's every single time you lose your temper with your spouse, you put a brick in the wall. Every time your eyes wander where they should not, every time your tongue speaks what it should not, it is a brick in the wall, and that wall would be so high, immountable, unscalable. But praise be to God. We don't need to climb over that wall. We don't need to pole vault that wall. We don't need to parachute over that wall, because Jesus Christ has obliterated that wall. 
He has knocked it down that we might be one with God. And God shows us that this has been done and been victorious by raising Jesus from the dead. It's not just the life of Christ. It's not just the death of Christ. It's also the glory of Christ that we see. Notice they hanged him on a tree, but God raised him up. Man says one thing about Jesus, but God says another. God raised him up from the dead. And look at how Peter says it. It's open and manifest. This word here in verse 46. On the third day, he caused him to appear. It's a word that means manifest or clear or obvious. It was not sneaky. It was not something spiritual that no one knows about or can see unless we just tell them about it. It was something that was obvious to all. The stone was rolled away. The tomb was and is empty. He appeared before the apostles. He appeared before 500. It was real. It wasn't a spiritual resurrection. Something that needs to be explained away. He ate fish. He ate food. They touched his flesh. It was as real as you and I are today. That is the power of the resurrection. It is no story. It is no fable. It is the reality of who Jesus is. But it's not just the resurrection that shows the glory of Jesus Christ. Peter also reminds us that the risen Jesus Christ is the judge of all. Of every single person, Jesus is judge. No one gets a free pass. Jesus is the one each and every one of us will stand before. And we will either stand before him and say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Or we will fumble in our pockets, look at the ground, shift the way many of us do when we are caught and know we cannot get out, as the searching eye of Jesus looks upon us. The only thing we can plead at that day before that great judge is the merit of the judge. Anything else vanishes away. And this too is the gospel. The only thing we have, the only thing we need is Jesus. He is our judge. Well, this is what the gospel is, the life, the death, the glory of Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful story. It is a wonderful truth. It is something we must share. But what does it do? What does it do for us? And what will it do for others? Why should we bring them this gospel? We see that here, too, this morning. We see it in two things. First, we see that the gospel changes us. And secondly, we see that the gospel shows the power of God. The gospel changes us. You see, there are two twin errors that we must resist. The first is thinking that the gospel is not to everyone. That there's only a select group of people that we can bring the gospel to. And then the second error is that the gospel is for everyone. What do I mean by this? I mean that the gospel is to everyone. We must bring the gospel. 
without discrimination, without hesitation. But the efficacy of the gospel is not for everyone. You cannot hate Jesus and have him as your savior. You cannot reject God's truth and then claim to be right with God. You cannot spit upon the idea of God and shake your fist against him and then pretend you are a loyal son. You see, the gospel comes to everyone, but we must embrace it. We must, as the Bible tells us, we must believe and repent. We must believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, and we must repent of our sins, turn from sin, and turn toward the Savior. Other kinds of gospels will not save. They may sound good. Gospels of social action. Gospels of equality. Gospels of civility. In the end, they're nothing. We don't solve deep-rooted problems of racism and hatred by spouting Oprah Winfreyisms to each other. It's only done through the power of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, changing the hearts of people. This is what changes us. It's what changed Cornelius. You see, Cornelius was a good man. We know this because the Scriptures tell us he did good things. He sought after God. But it was not until he believed on Jesus Christ that he became a part of the people of God. That's why the Holy Spirit comes down upon him. Peter makes that clear in Acts chapter 11. That Cornelius and all in his house and all of his friends believed. And the moment they believed, they became a part of the family of God. And that's where we see the second thing that the gospel does. As it brings us into the family of God, it shows us the power of God. The power of amazing grace. You see, grace is so amazing that it amazed Peter. You catch that from this text? Peter, the one who needed grace because he denied the Lord Jesus Christ, looks and sees the power of grace being extended to Cornelius and the Gentiles, and he and his fellow believers are blown away. Are you still amazed by grace? If you're not, I think it's probably because you've shortened the reach of grace. You're used to grace reaching the type of people that you think it should. You've given up on grace reaching the prostitute. You've given up on grace reaching the Muslim. You've given up on grace reaching the hard heart. But you see, grace is amazing. And when we see one brought into the kingdom of God, we need to rejoice because we see the power of God. And it's in technicolor here for us. It's Pentecost, the sequel. Pentecost, part two. And even in all of the details, the Holy Spirit comes down upon the Gentiles and they do two things. This afternoon at lunch, reread Acts chapter 2 and see if you can find tongues and glorifying God. Because that's exactly what Cornelius and the Gentiles do and it's exactly what the Jews did at Pentecost. The power of God reaches them in the same way. And the Holy Spirit comes down upon them the moment they believe that the promise might be fulfilled. 
And that promise is not just for Cornelius. It's not just for Bible people. You see, the speaking in tongues is not normative. God does this in three separate groupings. He does this in Jerusalem. He does it in Samaria. And now he does it at the ends of the earth. We never see it again. We never see it happening to individuals. It's groups. But you see, the power of the Spirit is for all of us. It's a promise that God says, you are my child. You remember that from Romans chapter 8? That we have the spirit of sonship. Do you doubt that you're God's child? We have a guarantee from God that we are in his family. It's the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. One commentator puts it this way. Ladies, when a young man comes up to you and says, you know what, I love you. You think, well, that's nice. That's good. But when a young man comes up to you and says, I love you. And here's a big diamond engagement ring. Woo, things change, don't they? Things are a little bit different. The love may not be different, but, ooh, this is serious. Put it on your finger. Why? So that you know a day is coming when we will be married. That's what the Holy Spirit is, believer. It's your engagement ring. And praise be to God, men get them too. This is the promise of the Spirit that comes down to us from the power of God. It's not relegated to the hereafter. It's not relegated to glory. It's here, it's now, it's available. This is the work of God in the life, the death, and the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.